Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, today, the part of Josie will be played by, by no one whatsoever, I'm afraid. But uh, as most of you know, Josie's currently on maternity leave and uh, we're hoping uh, we'll be on a show very, very soon. Uh, today's guest is Cal Flynn, who's written a fantastic book called Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape, uh, which was uh, nominated for the Bailey Gifford Prize. And just before I start talking to her, uh, a couple of things. Don't forget, I, th- I reckon this, this yeah, but uh, the, we've got two our Christmas shows, our Nine Lessons Christmas shows, which we had to postpone because we were being careful when the COVID uh, numbers were spiking in London. Uh, they are now on Easter Saturday and Easter Sunday at King's Place. There's only a few tickets left. We've got fantastic bills, so come along to that. Um, and the other thing as well is I am starting, finally starting the Horizons Tour with Brian Cox in Washington, uh, D.C. on the 22nd of April. And during that tour, which eventually we're doing, doing the USA, we're doing Canada, we're doing Singapore, we're doing Australia, New Zealand, uh, all around the UK and Ireland. Um, I'm going to try and read a book from every single town or city that we visit. And uh, so I need your nominations for books set in or books by people from any of the towns and cities on the Horizons tour that I'm doing with Brian Cox. I'm going to read at least one of those in each place. And uh, I read Carter, by the way, as it's sometimes called, uh, by uh, Ted Lewis. That covers for when we did a warm-up in uh, in Scunthorpe. So Scunthorpe book is covered. I don't need any more nominations for Scunthorpe books, but have a look at our tour dates. And if you can help out, that would be fantastic. And I will write all about it as well and, uh, and create a rather strange literary map around the world. Anyway, here I am talking to Cal Flynn. And one tiny thing to add on that we only just announced or decided we were going to do after we recorded this intro. This coming Sunday, the 20th of March at 8pm, we're going to do a special live stream just for Patreon supporters online. You'll get all the details uh, at patreon.com slash bookshambles or if you're a Patreon member of the overall Cosmic Shambles network, you'll get access to that as well. It's going to be myself, producer Trent, Robin and our good friend Joanna Neary going through some book oddities that we've collected over the years, stuff that Robin's collected on his 100 bookshops tour, stuff that Joe has collected over the years and... Uh, myself, I've just recently moved house and the Shambles office has just moved as well. And in that move, uh, I uncovered loads of weird books that I forgot I even had. So we're going to be chatting about those online. You can bring along and uh, let us know in the live chat some of the weird books that you've got as well. That'll be 8pm, March 20th online. Go to your Patreon account for all the details. Free for Patreon supporters. Or you can sign up at patreon.com slash bookshambles and join us then. And now, here's the episode. Cal, welcome to uh, Book Shambles. Um, now, as you know, because I've just told you before we start recording, uh, I thought this was going to happen two hours later, so I've read your book, but I haven't made my notes in the book. So every now and again, those listening will hear this. <laughs> and that's me trying to find... Uh, the, 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 the book is... I mean, this is such a fascinating area because it's one of the... the this area of places that have been 
human which have been part of what we might call civilization and are then left behind and then what you know and, and I, I remember that there was that wonderful it probably still exists twitter one of the good things from twitter there was a lovely uh um site which just had abandoned buildings and you would see sometimes these very ornate the sometimes former olympic villages uh sometimes things that were built on a, a, as a temporary thing anyway and then sometimes these magnificent i was looking at one the other day which was um where was it it was uh, in the Arctic, which it was the attempt to um, have mining in the Arctic, uh, coal mining, but the actual cost, it was so great, the cost of keeping people alive there, that you now have this beautiful village and all everything has been left left behind. So, so first of all, where does your your fascination, when did it start, these, uh, the, 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 these human endeavours uh, which are then left behind and then nature grasps them? You know, honestly, I think it might be something quite universal. I guess I've always been interested in it. And I think uh, probably very initially my interest would have been sparked by, you know, these heavily aestheticized images you see online, the sort of beautiful grown over ruins and, and so on. I mean, people started calling them ruin porn because for a while they were quite ubiquitous online. And whenever you dig down into the origins of the images, they get quite sort of shady, like everywhere is in theory a sort of abandoned sanatorium. Um, and then it will turn out just to be a factory on the outskirts of a city somewhere. But um, so I think probably from there, I had that sort of romantic idea deal of the ruin but where I got really specifically interested was during a trip to the the Slate Islands this is an area on the west coast of Scotland um really tiny islands that were sort of dug really deep down in the 19th century so they're like little donuts or sort of deeply pock tiny islands um they were abandoned uh after they were flooded in an enormous storm. And now you can go and see them. There's like these deep still pools. I went while swimming in one of them and it's just really a beautiful area. Um, and that got me really thinking about, I wrote an essay about it actually, about kind of the aesthetics of the post-industrial, how, how these things that are sort of environmentally damaging can in some way be sort of beautiful. And, and that's quite a, I don't know, a sort of politically agitating experience to be admiring something like that and I think from there I started reading around and I realized there was lots of really interesting science around the biodiversity of sites like this so it just kind of grew from there and it, it grew in all directions and I think that that's often when you know that you've hit on something good when you're like oh that's interesting that's interesting that's interesting you can begin to sort of pleat it together and have some kind of bigger thesis or bigger sort of I don't know feeling of moving through a place in lots of different levels if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's it's. I mean, the the book kept reminding me of there's an, an old uh, routine by the the comedian George Carlin, who used to rant about when people say, "Hey, save the planet, save the planet. The planet's gonna be fine. We might be fucked, but the planet's gonna be fine." And and that seems to be, you know, I mean, there's two places you go to, you know, an atoll which was uh, I can't remember the size of atom bomb that was actually tested there, but but far larger than the one in Hiroshima. You also go to to, to uh, Chernobyl as well, and that it, it, the 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 return of life where life seemed to us to to be surely destroyed or you know you know eviscerated and splintered is is, is fascinating i mean like the, if you can talk about that at all initially you said that when people first went back there that the idea was well something of such magnitude will have destroyed so much potential and yet nature found a way uh, yeah i think you're talking about the bikini at all and and this was you know major major 
site of testing in the 1950s, um, the kind of testing that would no longer be allowed today. Um, and yeah, it, it was an atoll already, but um, the blast crater was sort of in the middle of the atoll and it really wiped out the amazing coral reefs that um, were had grown there. Um, but what's happened in the decades since is because there hasn't been fishing, there hasn't been human you know, sort of irritation of the site, um, it has slowly been recolonized by coral. Not all the corals have returned, um, but they have recolonized the site and it is, um, you know, an, an amazing site to go diving now, um, largely because it's very undisturbed, almost pristine looking reef. Um, and I think that does tell us something. It's not that everything's going to be completely fine um it's not that it's okay to keep on sort of pillaging the earth but it's that we have to understand like the different ways that we can damage the earth and how some of them can be sort of short term they look bad but are, are, are short term and other types of damage that we can do to the earth are very long term and it's so it's a sort of difference between a flesh wound and a, and a wound to the heart if you see what i mean so um things that i started getting really anxious about the longer i was looking into this um was less the sort of superficial damage and more things like um, persistent organic pollutants. So things that really hang around for a long period of time. We talked about Chernobyl there and um, Chernobyl, well, it's a slightly different situation right at the moment at the time of speaking. Um, I mean, really the, the recovery that has happened at Chernobyl has depended so much on the stability of that site and the, the radioactive dust and so on, not being disturbed, not being moved around, really settling down. Um, but if you look at radiation, we see this different type of damage very clearly because you have certain radioactive elements which decay very quickly um, and then others which decay over a period of a few years or decades. Um, and then you have the ones that last from a human point of view indefinitely and they're the ones that that you're sort of really anxious about in um if you're a human um radioactive iodine is the one that we worry about most because they're the ones that get um uh, lodged in your thyroid um, and causes thyroid cancer now um it has a reasonably short half-life which means that most of the sites in chernobyl at least at the time that i visited the site um, were no longer dangerous for, for humans to move through. Um, but those longer lasting forms of radiation were still very much there. And so you've got to be careful and you've got to think in sort of different, I don't know, different types of zones of, of radioactive damage. And you can think of that in, in many different ways as well when you're thinking about chemicals, if you're thinking about, I don't know, industrial damage. Um, yeah, it's, it's different ways of damaging the earth. Well, you're right about about that kind of the the human side, which is you know we shouldn't fall into a a kind of false optimism of uh, nature will always repair itself because very much what you're saying, or quite a few of the things that I noticed in the book is, you know, nature repairs itself when we're not there, and then so so I I wondered what that does for for your kind of humanism, where you know each time our footprint returns, unless we're going to start learning lessons very very fast, um, the ability to destroy with the way that we live. See, and, and that's I think the, the, also the beauty of then seeing, you know, if we the, the, the post-human world and its possibilities, and what does grow through the cracks and what what can. But but once humans are there, so so how does that? As you visit those places, how has that changed your kind of sense of, of philosophy and psychology about what it is to be human on this planet? Well, I think um, probably the first thing that I'd say is it is not 
necessarily as simple as as we leave and and nature recovers it's um it's more like stable environments allow for recovery um and my book i suppose is more about the the ones that have attracted the quote-unquote wild species so these are species that we think of as being wild and these are the species that don't like human um presence they don't like being disturbed by us and so those are, if, if we look at exclusion zones, those are the ones that benefit the most from the absence of people. So things like wolves and bears and certain types of birds that really don't like to be disturbed. And those are the ones that we're really enchanted by because we so rarely get to see them. Um, you know, if we have stable environments that humans are in, um, especially, for example, the sort of low tech farming, they're often really biodiverse and interesting. Um, so it's not necessarily that humans themselves are bad, um, but it is that change and especially, well, I suppose fast change from an ecological perspective is often damaging because it means that an environment suddenly goes from being habitable to this particular species to unhabitable to this particular species. So I think it's more like the reason that those sites in my book have been so successfully recolonized is that they've been left for long periods of times and it's not constantly changing back and forth, which is what happens to a lot of abandoned sites. Um, you know, they maybe fall into dereliction or redevelop, turned into something else. Maybe that building is then falls down. So it's like constantly changing and then any other species living in the site are sort of skin deep and are quite easily removed. But if you have a site that lies dormant for really long periods of time, and especially if it's a large site, because larger sites can support more different types of species, um, that's when you get these really rich sort of, uh, you might call it sort of like layered um, type of environment. So the bigger the place, the better, and the less disturbance, the better, or, or at least the, most, the more stable, the better. Well, you, you start off in an island just four miles off uh, off Edinburgh, really, and it, and it, where you find also you find sleeping butterflies. I never think of butterflies sleeping. I think of them having such a short life. You know, they have a, they have a long sleep in the caterpillar stage, then they become butterflies, and then it's over and done with in a, in a flap of the wing. But that that beautiful thing. So, tell us, can you tell us a little bit about that that island? Because again, it it just to, for it to be so close to such a busy city and yet then have such a, a, a from that viewpoint such a strange diversity yes absolutely so this is Inchkeith. it's one of the fourth islands it's in the firth of forth just outside of edinburgh and um, it's not very easily accessible um not that many boats go there um it's a former fortress island and uh, I went across with a group of people who are volunteers who go there to count birds because it's now become kind of a notable bird colony. Um, seabirds come in there in spring um, and it's really busy at that time of year. So you come on and it's sort of like uh, terns and gulls and, you know, cormorants and all sorts of things are coming in over your head all the time and, and you're getting kind of dive bombed. Um, and seals in the winter will pull themselves up on the old slipways and actually kind of go a little bit wild on the island. They like roam around. Um, so these like young teenage seals are, are a bit of a hazard in winter. So you can't really land on the island because they're sort of, I don't know, <laughs> they're quite sort of bitey. You don't want to mess with them. Um, and then I went down into the old fortress tunnels um, and yeah, there it's probably most notable for these hibernating butterflies. I was amazed when I first saw them because I hadn't really thought of butterflies, not only not particularly hibernating, but, but being able to get to the island, but actually butterflies travel long distances over water quite often. 
Um, and so these butterflies were all sort of together in these small groups sort of clustered together. They're just, yeah, like sort of closed prayer hands, just, just like a normal butterfly, but they, they will be there for a period of months. They just allow their bodies to sort of go into dormancy. And then in the spring, they'll, they'll um, lay their eggs and they'll turn into caterpillars. So I think that island and the ones, other smaller ones like it around, they're just like these sort of drop-off points for species that are moving around all the time. And I think that that was quite helpful for me to think of it almost as like a, almost the way that we'd have a, like a service station or something. They, they, they keep moving, but they're constantly looking for helpful habitats here and there. And ideally ones that are not disturbed, especially the seals. So it's in the middle of a really busy shipping lane that these seals have found safe haven on this quiet island. And they're only very rarely disturbed by people going to count them. So you, you, you mentioned ornithologists and I also found it very interesting you, you about sometimes when due to political events there is something that's been created as a no man's land or, a, or a, an area of, of, of security and then actually you, you talk about when, when East Germany was reunited uh, with, with West Germany and there was this, this passage in between which ornithologists were saying, oh, no, 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 don't, don't, don't just unite everything there, keep that there because we are seeing uh, incredible species. Can you, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 border between East and West Germany, um, the actual the the actual sort of line itself was um, often ploughed and and like spotlit and not a great habitat. But it had on the East German side often a buffer zone of undisturbed forest, um, and that was left um, just the entirety of of the of the Cold War, essentially. And um, what happened then was it, it served as a green corridor. It became a really valuable habitat. A lot of the German redless species had been observed there and people on either side of the border um, would watch the birds. Um, and then later this became this, this lovely sort of meeting ground. They, they all met in a pub. Um, several hundred ornithologists from from either side of the border and then they were just like it's just too amazing we can't allow this to stop and it became this beautiful treasure almost of such a horrible political time and in fact it's it became this this green belt movement through germany and what they produced from it which was saving this this green corridor then went on to inspire a, a wider European green belt movement. So you can have a look at that online. Um, a number of different nature reserves have been strung together along the line of the old, um, the Cold War boundary. Um, and you can often follow huge parts of it. Um, people sometimes bike it from end to end and it goes from the very north of Finland all the way down to the Balkans. So it's quite amazing. When you started this, because you, I mean, you, you, you know, you, you, you travel to, to, to many places that no one would go to. First of all, is that something that often drives you on in terms of what you write and what you want to write? That you want to have an, an alibi to go to places where no one else can be? Yeah, I think, I think that's probably the best way of thinking about it. I mean, one of the things, I don't know, it's just good to have like a sort of quest because then it makes you go and do things. Um, and I think what I'm really looking for is a place that makes me feel something. You know, like I want it to be an experience, partly just from that sort of engenders the best kind of writing that you need to sort of feel what you're doing. Um, and so for me, it's important that it's not just a, 
bread and butter research trip it has to be somehow eerie or somehow touching or you know evocative in some way so that I will go home and then not feel that I'm sort of constructing something from nothing um so for me quite often I'm hanging around in these places waiting for something psychologically to happen to me <laughs> so it's a little bit difficult to put it you know like explain what I'm doing to myself I'm just like I just need to hang around and maybe chat to people and take loads of notes and then see where I go so I just have to budget quite a lot of time in for just sort of hanging around and and looking into stuff until something comes becomes obvious because I think the important thing for me when I was writing this book that is not only going to be the story of x place and y place but each of these places also had to be somehow representing like a bigger question or a different aspect of abandonment so I talk about like the ecology of of abandoned places so that might be looking at how war zones are particularly no man's lands these like static areas um how they have historically become um useful for for nature or it might be looking very specifically at sort of how plants adapt to heavy metal pollution um or in the psychology ones um that ended up being, you know, how are people in these places reacting either positively or negatively to, to abandonment. And, and for those ones, I didn't know exactly what I was going to write before I got there. And it was conversations with people that I had. So for example, in Patterson, New Jersey, I was hanging out in urban ruins. So these are massive old mills, um, like factory buildings um, that are often burnt out and they're grown over. And I found a lot of people um, homeless people either live there or people will go there to hang out, smoke drugs, I um, don't know, sort of tap into their wilder side. And a few conversations I had there definitely sort of shaped that chapter and made me understand sort of the attraction of these abandoned places. You know, we started this conversation by talking about, you know, like, when were you drawn to these places? And I think that especially, especially like teenage boys, but a lot of other people too, um, are drawn to these places because they feel they can express themselves there. They can behave in a, a less controlled way and, and sort of get out a lot of the energy or emotions or whatever it is that they find hard to express in, in normal life and, and, you know, maybe behave against the rules. Uh, and this plays like kind of an important part in their psychology and a lot of people go there blow off steam. And so I had like this conversation a few times with different people that we met and that seemed to be something that that united them and I found that interesting I haven't really had that conversation before I find that very that that uh when human places are no longer meant to be human places mm. and then what they when you were talking there I don't know why it reminded me of that book the mole people I don't know if you ever read that and and Mark Singer to, uh, made a, a similar film as well which is about all the lower layers of the New York subway and all of the homeless people that uh or not you know that's their home that they and it is and it's a, it's a few layers below where we see humanity and in that same way those those places that were built to be mills to be factories and then something you know, there, there, there's a repurposing and a, and a different kind. And again, as you said, the psychology of what comes out from human beings when they are placed in those situations, or they decide to journey to those places. Yeah, absolutely. Because I had to really interrogate this question of like, what does it mean for a place to be abandoned? Because a lot of the time, when I went to these quote unquote abandoned places, there were loads of people there, <laughs> you know. And um, so I had to be like, okay, so an abandoned place is a place that has stopped being used for its original usage you know so often people go to abandoned places you know i find there's a lot in detroit you know they abandoned houses 
tend to be disliked by their neighbors, not because of the way that they look, although that too, but mainly because they become a site for crime. Um, and so they might be being dwelt in by people. They might be being used by people to do drug steals or, or, or whatever. So abandoned places are almost always populated in some way. I mean, even in, in Chernobyl, again, uh, before the, the, the present trouble there, um, a lot of the abandoned villages had one or two old people who had moved back in in the decades since the accident there. And so, I mean, what does it mean for a place to be abandoned in such a populated world? Because almost nowhere did I find absolutely no people whatsoever. It sounded, at times it, it reminded me, I, I was thinking of uh, the film and the book, in fact, uh, uh, Stalker. Uh, I yeah. don't know if you, you know, and roadside picnic. The book that 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 sense every now and again, I almost saw you as, you know, as as a store, you know, going going into these places where there are things that have been left behind. What do you then bring back with you? You know that, and and I started. To, there must be times where it it you can be almost shocked by how so psychologically overwhelming some of these, and, and I presume you can't predict when suddenly you're going to be be hit by that that sense of being overwhelmed. Yeah, I think so. It, and the weird thing was in a lot of these places, really the only way I had to relate to them was through popular culture, you know, because that was the closest touchstone I had to understand what was happening in them. So things like Stalker, things like disaster movies of all kinds, you know, um, when I was walking through Plymouth, which was the capital of Montserrat, this is a Caribbean island, um, the, the old capital has been flooded with ash through pyroclastic flows from a volcano. Um, and just the scale of a place like that and, and in Pripyat um, was really difficult to understand. And it just felt like walking through a movie set. And um, that's all I had to compare it to. It's, it's very strange, it's very strange. And I think you just constantly have to be saying to yourself, this is real, this is real, this is real, it's real people's lives. Um, and, and I think writing about it, I knew I had to sort of walk that careful line between summoning up that strange uncanny feeling um but without sort of swishing over the actual human stories at the heart of it you know like a, a quote henry james at the beginning of the book talking about how uh, ruin questing as as he called it was a heartless pastime and i think that that was what i was really anxious about especially actually in detroit because i know that um a lot of people who live in detroit are kind of fed up of being written about and especially the the sort of ruination side of things being written about so i knew that you have to you have to think about the human stories you have to talk to people you have to go a little bit deeper than just the yeah that that ruin porn aspect how much does it change each time you've been away and then you return to uh the populated and 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 busy world um do you have a, a a period of kind of you know that interim period of now addressing what this situation and, and does do the walls around you change does the city that you're walking in change after you've been to one of these abandoned places i think the the biggest thing was i started noticing them and i started reading that realizing that there are abandoned places around us all the time and before i began writing and reading and research about them um i hadn't really paid much attention to them you know like the value that we put on a piece of land changes the way we perceive it 
And so before, if I went past like a derelict car park, all I would think would be like, oh, what a waste, you know? And now I go past it and I'm like, oh, wow, look at all the plants growing in that beautiful piece of broken down tarmac. You can see how, you know, these natural processes are breaking it apart. Isn't that fascinating? And then it becomes like this acre of like wonderland. Um, I've, it's not in the book, but uh, there's a, a, a place called Ardeer, again, on the, the southwest coast of Scotland. And um, it is a former dynamite making site. Um, and I went down there with a group of local, um, I guess, wildlife enthusiasts, um, a, a local entomologist. And they are trying to save it from redevelopment because it's such an interesting site specifically for invertebrate life. And that we went into the old car park and it's all grown over now with like a really thick, quite quilty kind of moss um and sea buckthorn is like pushing up through any kind of weak points in the tarmac and it's broken it apart and I don't know it's just like it's so exciting to me now and you know even in the small town where I live which is really not abandoned I suddenly notice you know like bubbly are popping out and like the the cracks in the walls or like the different plants that grow there the birds that are going in and out of tiny holes in people's walls and you start loving that because one of the the problems for lots of different species for example like barn owls um one of the reasons that they are doing badly is because we have gotten too clean and too tidy and all these new buildings that we throw up don't have holes they're not breaking down in the same way so like barn owls need to be able to get into places so you know having an old barn with an old loft with a broken window or something is perfect um so actually it it, it made me a fan of untidiness and dereliction in a way that i hadn't been before and now i just find it really enchanting <laughs> Yeah, I've wondered about uh, also just in terms of your reaction to the the you know just the the the, the built up world the the the, the world is you know do, does that because I was thinking about you know obviously Ozymandias and you know Shelley's words must reverberate this all the time you know look on my works you mighty and and that sense of fragility because I always find sometimes when you go to somewhere that's been abandoned and you maybe one of my favorite things is when, when you see a block of flats that there's just one wall that's left and it's still quite high and you see everyone's different individual choice of wallpaper and there's a kind of there's a melancholy to that there's both a joy and a melancholy because you think there were people who stood and went what should we have and they went to the shop and then there was probably an argument because someone wanted yellow and someone wanted blue and all of these things and then you realize that they're probably most of those people who live in the flats they're no longer alive all of those those you know those frippery choices which might have brought tremendous happiness or tremendous arguments they they were just that moment in time yeah absolutely i mean it does make you look at all of human existence be like it's somehow thinner than I thought you know like it's so much more temporary than I thought but then I think that that is quite freeing in itself you know to be able to say to yourself it doesn't really matter does allow you to enjoy things in a in a different way if you know what I mean so um in like all of all of this one day will be dust you know it's a terribly freeing um, observation and I think that one thing that abandoned places really do like one of the reasons I think they're so moving is that it is a way of seeing time because that's not something that we can see normally and we're very caught up in the present moment or we think in terms of maybe a year um, but then you go to an abandoned place and you're like right I am looking at hundreds of years it, it gives it a, a, a physicality in a, in a way that's quite difficult to otherwise understand and that's really freeing. You can see how 
we make such short-term plans. And I think that that's really important, not only to our own personal psychology, but also when we think about things like conservation, we need to be thinking in, in much longer term ways. You know, a lot of people are, um, but it's so important for us not to be impatient when we're planning for the future. So for me, that's things like if you're, if you're doing plantations of trees, um, to, to sink carbon like that's great but also we can allow those trees to grow and, and natural woodlands are, are better than man-made ones so if we can be a bit more patient you know maybe things can can work out better so I think it's it's helping me think I think probably in in much longer term but it's very hard I don't think our, our brains are really set up to think like that so we get glimpses of it in in abandoned places every so often you'll suddenly be like oh wow you know a thousand years I suddenly understand it um, and then you've lost it and and you know it goes away again but I think that's definitely one of the reasons that it sort of prods your brain in, in a different way to go and walk in these places. Did you I, I'm not sure how much of the book you you wrote before the pandemic began we were, were you still writing you wrote all of it because because mm-hmm. I just wondered that you know, if I remember the first show that I did with Josie actually and I looked and I was drinking out of a mug that was one of those mugs you get for Christmas which has a family picture of you and your child or whatever and I thought oh no that's the image that you have in one of those dystopian movies as as though they they're going through the rubble they pick on this this was the past when things are, yeah and you have that kind of, and and I think those are very useful moments as well but I wondered how much having done so much traveling in those places you know could you feel the effect of also this uh seismic change for for people at least for that year in in your writing sorry i guess so i think for me it felt sort of vertiginous you know i'd done all this reading around how things fall apart and then it does make you quite um I don't know if, if hypochondriac is the way to put it, because it, I mean, the pandemic has been a, a huge global eruption, but I, I, I felt quite keyed up at the beginning of it. Like I'd, like I'd anticipated this and I kind of knew what coming and um, that was quite strange, but I, th- I think a lot of people did generally, again, because, because we've watched so many disaster movies. Um, what, I did find interesting, you know, was suddenly seeing these images of, you know, empty streets with kangaroos bouncing down them or, you know, the, that kind of thing, you know, the the later debunked um, dolphins in Venice canals, that kind of thing was, um, that was really interesting, partly because I saw how much we wanted that to be true. Mm. Um, and so I'd, I'd written all of the book already and then I was just doing edits so I did have a, an opportunity to put a few references in here and there and so I felt like the need to put in a sort of warning note at the beginning of the book being like look it looks good but you know like actual recovery takes time you know like a, a couple of weeks of us being off the street is not enough for the the world to recover and in fact if you look at even things like emissions which which were down a lot have actually only been down maybe a you know a a quarter of what we need them to be you know we we need to be doing this but like much more so we need to be cutting down I think it what it did do was give us a sense of the scale of how much we need to change the way we're living because that was a real turning our lives upside down people stuck inside their houses people not traveling and it still wasn't enough to be cutting our emissions right back um to to the levels that we needed them to be so partly we wanted it to be that easy and partly i think we also just don't understand the scale of what we what we need to do 
What was the? Was there any place of, of of those that actually made it into the book? Was there any one that you really wrestled with that you kept thinking, I just can't quite. You had all those stories, but you couldn't quite get the shape and form. Was that was the one that that took longer than than the others? Um, two probably. So uh, I keep mentioning Detroit, but it, that was because it, it caused a lot of difficulties because what I was initially going there to write about ended up not being true. So I'd read newspaper articles about how there were like 50,000 feral dogs on the streets and so initially a chapter that then became a completely different chapter set in the north of Scotland um, about sort of feralness and and when does an animal become wild again um, that's initially what I was going to write about there uh, I was going to write about dog packs um, and then I made an appointment to go hang out with the Michigan Humane Society who were super helpful and lovely and the very first thing that they said to me was like you know that stuff's not true right and I was like what <laughs> what do you mean um I've read a lot of coverage and they're like yeah no I don't know where they got that number from it was spread about by somebody else that's definitely not true as you'll see when you come out with us in the van was like right this is a really long way to go to find that out and so I had to completely rethink rework and and do quite a lot of that on the hoof um figure out what what I was interested in there. And then that other chapter, the one that I, I was sort of alluding to, the, the North of Scotland one that sat on an island in Swona, that then became about feral animals. And in a different context, that was about feral cattle, which are very rare, actually. There's not very many totally feral herds of cattle in the world. Um, and in fact, there was quite a famous one on Amsterdam Island, but then they were all killed um, as part of a conservation project to save native vegetation so they'd been quite well studied and the Swana ones less so but there was a really interesting um, 1980s study of their behavior by an animal scientist that I sort of dug into Swana is now very local to where I live although it wasn't at the time and so I went to stay there for 24 hours I got dropped off there by a boatman and then that chapter is a bit of a monster it's it's very long compared to the other ones and i wasn't sure about including it because i don't know it that place really affected me a lot and i think it was because the 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 true solitude i experienced there and again not for a huge amount of time like 24 hours alone on an island um i didn't think would make me quite as wild as it did but it it did sort of destabilized me a little bit um and I tried to write about how frightened it made me to be that alone um and I wasn't sure that it was going to translate and so I've been really relieved that people have responded to that chapter in the way they have because it, it it's sort of written up a little bit like a gothic horror or something like that but I was a bit anxious that people would be like well nothing really happened to you you know <laughs> um but to me that was one of the the weirdest experiences I had which was like being so alone and especially being in this sort of ruined derelict house or houses as they were and surrounded by these like grimy old human things that were sort of decades old um it, it made me feel very sort of weird and unclean and I wasn't able to eat and I was barely able to drink and I couldn't really sleep and I became very frightened by very normal things um and so that chapter, I, I, I definitely sort of threw around a lot of 
different versions of in my head before I settled on it and then even right up to when I handed in the book I was like I don't know if I should include this chapter um and then uh, my editor was like yeah I think it's maybe one of the best so that was good that was good you know like sometimes you need to to bounce it off off people and I'm glad that people have related to it in a way I wasn't sure that they would no, it's great. It's uh, um, the nearest I can think of that uncleanness was actually staying in a B and B in St Andrews. It's just <laughs> a, there was a toilet in the main room and the little cooker next to it, and there was mm. something about the whole thing. You know, when it just all comes together. So that's the I've never uh, been under threat being, uh, you know, because that that's the as as the boat leaves says, "Do not sleep outside; you will be trampled by cattle." I mean, that that is the opening scene in some kind of you know nineteen seventies exploitation movie about when the cattle go mad. Um, the it's just called cows exclamation mark. Um, this is I, in terms of just finally, I, I was wondering about your influences about when you know is, is this something? You know, do you have favourite travel writers? Was there someone when that you were reading when you were a child when you were growing up uh, that that inspired you in this direction? Mm, interesting. I think um, really while I was writing it, I was sort of thinking of it as like a nature book. So definitely like the writing of like Kathleen Janey and Robert McFarlane um and Annie Dillard as well who writes about very different things but I like that level of like incredible almost like religious intensity that she brings to it really interested in that um but yeah Kathy and Jamie Robert McFarlane probably stylistically I learn a lot from and Elizabeth Colbert who is this amazing American New Yorker writer and she writes a lot of environmental sort of long reads and she's written at least three books and they're all amazing um, so they're great and then I read a lot of fiction um, and I read quite a lot of like dystopian or sci-fi sort of literary stuff and I think that definitely in terms of writing this book and even just the way that I was looking at the world especially these sites um, so much of that is influenced by you know um, Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, for example, like I love that book. And in fact, I was reading it on Swana, which was probably not helpful. And one of the reasons I was probably going slightly out of my mind. Um, but that definitely impacted the way that I looked at, um, for example, the, the clearing in the woods in the Verdun chapter. Um, yeah, sci-fi, dystopian, you know, Station Eleven. I talk about that mm. in uh, Slab City chapter, this idea of sort of building like culture and community out of the rubble. You know, that's such a beautiful book. My American editor sent me it just just because I, I think she she was involved in the publishing of it and she was like, oh, you might enjoy this book. And then it just hit me at this really receptive moment. And, and I love that novel, wow. So definitely like fiction a lot is kind of hard to say exactly how, how it influences nonfiction writing, but definitely trying to get that flavor or atmosphere across was important to me. And and does that? And I presume that influences your fascinations as well, even if they are merely, you know, I, say, I didn't mean to say merely novels, but as I mean, you know, I mean, I often find with dystopian, well, science fiction as a whole, which still, I, I mean, I know now people, you know, it, it's not quite as as uh, derided as as it, it has been, but I still think it's such an, it's like, you know, comedies never or very rarely win the Oscar for best film, and science fiction, it's going to be very rare uh, that it ever wins. The, the, the Booker Prize, unless it's Margaret Atwood, or you know, the, and, right. uh, and, <laughs> and like unfairly, definitely, because like often, like the very biggest ideas that are being dealt with in fiction are being dealt with in science fiction. Like, I, I recently got back into it, probably in the last 
five years having been really into science fiction as a teenager. Um, and then I sort of drifted away and I came back because I interviewed the, the head of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the director, Tom. Um, and he was like, basically the best science fiction is uh, their thought experiments. And I was like, mm. that's exactly what they are. And, and suddenly that like retuned my brain to being interested in it and have read so much sci-fi since then because they are like big philosophical works of art. I don't know. Amazing. Well, that's what Philip K. Dick always said that he was, you know, he was a philosopher using science fiction. And uh, and I was thinking that at the beginning of this year that I had that, you know, when you get those three days at the beginning of a year where you think, I'm going to have so much time to read this year. And then life, you've, you've somehow forgotten that once life begins, you won't have nearly as much you'd imagine. But I, I with no deliberate intention, I read four books all about reality. Uh, and how we perceive it and it was the futurological congress by stanislaw lem which i if you've not read have you have you read it no i've only read solaris it's fantastic it's very very slim as well so it doesn't all of them were very very slim and the, the lathe of heaven by ursula k Le Guin, um and uh, and then patricia lockwood's book uh no one is talking about i think it's called no one's talking about this uh and uh also uh a book called gratitude which is about someone with dementia who's getting aphasia and they were a proofreader in the beginning and it was like each one all of them you know two of them will be accepted as acceptable literature um and were both magnificent, but they were all dealing with that the the, the brittle flimsiness of, of 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 our reality. In and all of them were thought experiments. Even though Patricia Locke was obviously, I think of of all of them is the closest to actually her her experience. Yeah, and I I just love that the feeling of like at the end of a book making you feel weird for a while. You know, that's definitely what I'm looking for. Stuff that makes you kind of question the nature of reality for a while. That's the sign of a good book, in my opinion. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. This is uh, uh, Islands of Abandonment is out in paperback now, isn't it? I yes. It's only, yes. only very recently come out in paperback. And uh, it was uh, short shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford. And I know one of the judges and I know how much uh, she uh, loved this book as well. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic, beautiful cover as well. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that cover is uh, the, the purple waves and then the, the house that has that magical but haunted quality, you know, where you can just see Tim Burton going, I'll nab that for my next design there. <laughs> so between Edward Gorey and, uh, and, and Tim Burton. But Islands of Abandonment is out now. Thank you so much for joining us, Cal. Thank you to our producer, Trent Burton. Please support us via Patreon. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Cal's book, Islands of Abandonment, is out now. You can get that from hive or any of your local independent bookshops or other places are available as ever thanks as ever to our patreon supporters patreon.com slash bookshambles where you can go to sign up and become a member and get access to lots of extra bits and pieces including a special live stream this coming sunday night back next week with another new episode until then take care stay safe and bye for now Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.